Welcome to Deep Pacific, a Pacifica podcast that shares Islander views and voices. I'm Kalani Rages, your millennial indigenous advocate and host. We are recording in the second week of December 2020. Christmas is coming upon us. The holidays, we are in full swing. And black lives, especially black trans people's lives all around the world, matter. Being an indigenous person means supporting black people, other indigenous people, and people of color, as well as those in the LGBTQ community globally in their struggle to exist and thrive in this cruel world. Rest in peace to all those we have lost recently to COVID, to the death penalty, to police brutality, including in the Pacific. Abolish the carceral system, prisons, the death penalty, all of it, and capitalism. Black Lives Matter, never forget. I would like to begin with the acknowledgement that I am recording on Guahangi Islas Marianas, currently a territory occupied by the US, and I am not from here, so I call myself a settler here. Therefore, it is with respect that I occupy this land and space and support Guahan in its fight for self-determination. Please join, Guam needs you. We begin this episode with a quote from an indigenous Pacifica person that resonates. Today's quote, Christianity never came to mean anything to me. I was more deeply impressed by what my mother had taught me when I was young than by this later teaching. To this day, Talking to a river or to a tree is far more important to me than sitting down and listening to somebody else talking about God. This was Sir Albert Maori Kiki, who was the former Deputy Prime Minister of Papua New Guinea, author, advocate, and founder of Papua New Guinea's first trade union, as well as the Rugby Union Association of Papua and New Guinea, because He was sick and tired of colonizer BS. He was an outspoken advocate for equality and independence in Papua New Guinea and played a key role in PNG politics in the lead up to independence in 1975. Strong Virgo energy. His book, Kiki, 10,000 Years in a Lifetime, is definitely an addition to my mile-long reading list that I am excited to read. Find the link to it in the show notes. Rest in peace, Sir Albert Maori Kiki. This quote sets the tone because this episode will be about religion in the Pacific. What it stands for to us Pacifica people, what it has been rooted in historically, and where we think it will go in our futures. This is part four on our decolonization series. You will hear from an awesome lineup of Pacifica people. Toa, my favorite Itoke or indigenous Fijian, Te Atuahere, our diasporic Tahitian Maohi poet, queen. Yes, this girl is so hardworking, she made it to the very last episode. RT, one of my favorite Guahan Chamorus with roots in Chuk. Timiti, our badass Tahitian Samoan educator living in Tahiti with roots in France. Simone, our Guahan Chamarita Nenny girl from episode 7, is back, ending with Kavana, once again our favorite angry Hawaiian, and Kanaka Maoli, who came out of the womb fighting for Hawaiian sovereignty, it seems. And that is our lineup of beautiful indigenous Pacific Islanders, 
only fitting for the final episode. We will end today with a little summary of an article on Pacifica representation in climate change reporting published in February of this year. You know, we could not do this podcast and not include climate change as a focus on the scientific paper portion of this episode at least once. Rest assured that a future episode on climate change is definitely coming. I just need way more time to structure it out, but you definitely want to stay for this article. Now, let's do it. Let's dive in. Okay, so our driving question today is what do Pacific Islanders think about religion? We are gathered here today to speak on the topic of religion. And true to form, like the islanders we are, we are going to talk about this in a kind of roundabout way, but please stay with me. Trust me, this conversation will go places. So two rules when meeting people that I despise. One, never talk about politics. Two, never talk about religion. This old school rule is based on the assumption that if you and someone else have different opinions on these topics, you can still get along. Well, here today we see the consequences of this ignorance. Q 2020, Black Lives Matter movement, face mask usage being politicized, etc. If you've ever clicked on our link in our bio, you will see that one of Deep Pacific's aims is to confront the big problematic topics affecting our communities with the justice, care, and attention they so deserve. So here goes our first shot at religion. Something to note. Keep in mind that although religion is such a broad term that encompasses everything from paganism, ancestral worship, etc., when we refer to religion, we are referring specifically to organized religion, which is crazy because I just looked it up and found about 10 different definitions. Also known as institutional religion, this is religion in which belief systems and rituals are systematically arranged and formally established. This is from Wikipedia, which broke my language teacher's rules of never use a word to define its own definition, but go off Wikipedia, go off. From Merriam-Webster, a belief system that has large numbers of followers and a set of rules that must be followed. Okay, next, the free dictionary, which is questionable because in this capitalistic world, nothing free is truly free, but moving on. An organization founded and united for a specific purpose. That was very different. And last one, I swear, Collins Dictionary. Institutionalized religion, usually with a hierarchical clergy and rules to govern the means by which adherents participate. Okay, mystery solved. Now you know what organized religion is and what we will be referring to in this episode while we talk about religion. To be specific, we will mainly be referring to Christianity not because it's the only religion in the Pacific, but because it and its many offshoots like Catholicism and Church of the Latter-day Saints have been the primary way of colonizing us. This is not an opinion. This is fact. Don't believe me? Read a book. Just not the Bible. Because I'll tell you this right now. It doesn't mention us. Just for fun, I looked up the definition of Christianity too. So from Merriam-Webster, it means... The religion derived from Jesus Christ of Nazareth, based on the Bible as sacred scripture and professed by Eastern, Roman Catholic, and Protestant bodies. It is by the numbers one of the most widely distributed religions and the most diffused, with more than 2 billion people identifying with it. That's 2 billion people looking up to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Wow. Anyway, 
If you wanted to know how deeply religion played a role in how we in the Pacific live our lives today, let me tell you, religion rooted in racism was used as a basis to justify colonization in order to develop the idea of capitalism. So let me explain. A briefest of brief history of religion needs to be established, but I promise not to bore you with unnecessary details. Back in pre-contact days, religion was different. Royalty and the nobility, or being a member of the clergy, were an almost guaranteed pathway to heavenly salvation. Organized religion like Christianity has this awesome feature of being binary, or two-sided, even today. You are either a saint or a sinner, an angel or a devil, faithful or unfaithful, and man or woman. There's no room for nuance, no gray area in between. The binary line, or the line with two sides back then, was royalty or nobility versus ordinary people, also known as lay people, with nobility supposedly having their power handed down to them directly from the celestial god in heaven, and the monarchy being the mouthpiece from which God spoke. Because of this, nobility were considered celestial as well, with everything else terrestrial or derived from the land, so heavenly versus earthly. This brought a lot of other assumptions with it. For example, the best, most habitable lands were fit only for nobility and the church, with everything else deemed uninhabitable lands, open to the lesser nobility to own and do what they saw fit with, or open to the poor folks. All of these lavish lifestyles of the monarchy required extracting massive amounts of resources and labor from the land. But of course, greed plagued the colonizers, as it does today. They needed more than just their lands. They couldn't be satisfied. And that just sounds really familiar. After some time passed with the expansion of Christianity via colonization, the binary line evolved to become instead Christian versus non-Christians, or infidels, like Jews and Muslims who had refused the word of God or the gospel. This expanded the definition of those allowed into heaven because if you could lead a sin-free life and serve God by serving the king and being a good subject and giving him your free labor while your teeth literally rotted and fell out of your mouth, well, good for you. The problem came when they went on their quest to discover, quote-unquote, the earth and spread Christianity, and then met with those who didn't fit into those two categories, so another one was added. Christian, non-Christians or infidels, and other. Other being those poor lambs without a shepherd. People like indigenous people who supposedly lived without any religion. Note, they did have religion. The colonizers just didn't give a flying fish to find out. They called these people indios, or uncivilized people, and considered them inferior to Christians. Indios was a term used to describe all the native people who were living in any territory owned by Spain. These first indios included Native Americans, Chamorros like me, and Filipinos, and this was the beginnings of racism. So, these colonizers came up with all sorts of reasons to justify how they treated these people. And then, to show their obvious superiority and in moral intellect, you know what they did? That's right, they added another binary, 
when they entered the slave trade. Man versus Negro. Negro being all the people of African descent who were seen not as men to Europeans, but as subhumans as well. Not worthy of religion. They didn't have any souls. Not even worthy of being saved or converted into Christians. This was how the idea of quote-unquote white people was first formed. Of course, there are exceptions, like there were classes of white people who were also discriminated against and traded like slaves, but we're not talking about them today. Anyway, in case you didn't know, this is why our liberation as Pacific people is tied to black people's liberation. Now you know. Columbus saw his explorations as a way of helping to further expand Christianity while at the same time getting resources for Spain. The Spanish state was the vehicle for this expansion, which would also bring it more power. Discovery, evangelization, and colonization therefore went together hand in hand. My home, the Marianas, was one of the first places in the Pacific to be colonized, unluckily by that blankety-blank colonizer Magellan, who landed on our shores in 1521 with the first Spanish settlement being established there and in the Philippines not long after. This was 499 years ago that this happened to us. 500 years in like one month. So for 499 years, we have been terrorized and the Marianas is still a colony today with the Philippines being a neo-colony of the United States. This is why Chamorro and Filipino histories are tied so closely together. Freaking colonizers. They took our lands, one island nation by another, until the last island was converted. Some of these islands, I should mention, were not colonized directly in the sense that they came and established their presence on the land and wiped out the people with disease and exploitation. Others, like Tonga and Kiribati, were neo-colonized by other means that were non-religious in nature, supposedly, by using economic, political, cultural, or other pressures to influence us. I won't traumatize you further, except to say that Mormonism, Catholicism, and various types of Christianity are now what we are left with today instead of our indigenous religions and instead of our spirituality. I admit when I think of it this way, I am filled with anger and profound sadness. Religion has touched the entire Pacific and deemed us unworthy. It deemed our ancestors unworthy of salvation unless they did X, Y, Z. Religion took our land resources to further its cause. But you know what it can never touch? You know what we need to bring back? Religion of the sea. Because these religions focus on faraway lands, they could never sever our ancestral connection with our ocean. That has remained with us, enduring, through generations, like in Moana. Her connection was never severed, and neither is ours. The big question today concerns what we think of religion, not necessarily how do you decolonize religion. If you've been following along in the deep Pacific canoe, you will know that you actually cannot decolonize something that is colonial at the very core, such as this. 
organized religion has been used as the very tool of colonization in the Pacific. And successfully too, I may add. So then why is this episode a part of the decolonization series? Well, because you will definitely need to understand how we were colonized to get how we can decolonize or extricate ourselves from this mess as cleanly as possible if we so choose. And that choice will always remain with you. So if you, my dear listener, are expecting me to try to convince you to leave religion today, I am so sorry to disappoint you. I'm not going to do that. If you expect me to try to get everyone in the Pacific to jump on the boycott Christianity train, I am also sadly not going to do that either, even if I wanted to. Like the blues and greens of our warm waters, this topic is not simply embrace religion versus shun religion. This is no binary, and we are not binary people either. It is nuanced. Every place is different. Every person's experience with religion is different. And these differences will be pretty evident in the contributions you will hear today. I will simply envelop you in a warm, loving Pacifica hug while we tell you stories of our experiences with religion in the Pacific and our lives. Moving into the episode, as your host, it needs to be said that I am a born and raised traditional Chamorro Roman Catholic. I grew up in the Marianas, which is a modern-day colony under the United States, literally named after a former Queen of Spain. I am ignorant on a few aspects of religion. I did not research all things concerning religion. Religion itself is practiced fairly differently everywhere, even within the same island. I grew up baptized from a young age, attending church as a baby, and as soon as I could walk, I was made to accompany my huge family, uncles, aunts, my nang, my grandmother, and my parents, in riding on the back of pickup trucks and vans, and bringing the baby Jesus, which we call the Niño, to all the residents in the villages of Dandan and San Vicente in my home island of Saipan in the Marianas every single Christmas, New Year, and Three Kings Day since I could remember. We do this while singing Christmas hymns in Chamorro or Rafalawash and blasting them from speakers taped onto the trucks that brought us around. And it still never fails to make me cry when I hear those hymns again when I'm away from home. I feel for you diaspora people out there during this rough holiday season, during this rough year. I attended church often, if not for Mass, then for Easter Mass, and if not for Easter, then Christmas, Good Friday, Palm Sunday, and if not for those days, then funerals and weddings and fiestas. This religion that killed so many of my ancestors is something I grew up loving. It is something that many of my people embrace. It is something that I never really believed in, though, except for the fact that it is central to my way of life back home. Because of that, I am still a Catholic in practice, if not in faith, when I am home. My mom would not be happy I am saying this, but it's true. And maybe one day she'll understand me. So, if Christianity's true purpose was to spread their morality around the world, then... Why do so many Christian societies have problems with domestic violence? Why are women not allowed to love God the same way men are? Why is there such blatant homophobia 
in these communities. If we were to come to this with the understanding that religion and colonization were both formed on the basis of a moral high ground, then there are a few ways forward for decolonizing. We will discuss those later. Though I will try to be respectfully aware of all the nuance of this topic, in the Pacific that is simply not possible for one person to bring light to all the darkness, which is why I brought some friends with me. Keep in mind that these contributors are also speaking from their own experiences, which may not be representative of all religions in the Pacific or of their cultures. Also, keep in mind that we will be covering our indigenous or ancestral religions in season two next year. So I asked them specifically to leave those out in this round of narratives. Again, this episode is a part of our decolonization series. This is an important and explosive topic. It is not easy to grasp. It is not easy to explain. Some may take offense to the things that are said today, and that is okay. Let us work on decentering ourselves. How about you take a breath? Inhale with me. Count. One, two, three. Now, exhale. Let your shoulders relax. Let your eyebrows, forehead, tongue relax. Open your ears, minds, and hearts to be ready to receive these stories and lived experiences. And now, here is our first contributor. <laughs> Bula. My name is Toa. You can find me on Twitter or whatever. <laughs> uh, what do Pacific Islanders think about religion? Hmm. Religion. Me? Organized religion, I feel, is a doom of whatever the founders came up with. In my case, I was brought up a Christian. As I am now, I feel that I am trying to find my way. Don't get me wrong, I'm still a Christian, but not in the way they think. Yes, when I say they, there's a certain meaning to it. <laughs> I am currently trying to stick to the ways that the founder of Christianity, or more accurately, the one who showed us the way, I'm trying to follow that way. And it's not an easy way. I mean, it's something that we were warned about in our religious texts. But neither is it really hard. I remember what my grandfather always said. Nothing is difficult. People. People are difficult. Everything else can be done. <laughs> uh, may you rest in peace. Arise in glory. <laughs> but all in all, I believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I believe that the Son came to earth and he died in order that I might have a proper relationship with the Father. And I'm currently by, uh, guided by the Holy Spirit. Do I experience tensions between my spiritual, religious, 
identity and my indigenous identity, there are tensions, yes. The thing about us Fijians, when the new religion came, the Lotu, when it came about, it met a society that was spiritual in essence, that understood that everything is beyond what we see, even the Vanua. What we saw had an underlying nature to it. For instance, when we talk about an emotion, we understood and there was an explanation for it. Happy, sad, sad, we'd say luluvu nealongu, meaning my soul was flooded. Or sometimes we say, Evure mai veau, azumbu, shendonayalo katakata. Meaning that within me came forth a spring of anger, or sometimes hate. We understood such things long before psychologists came. And it was deeply intertwined with our religion, with our spirituality. All of our rituals. I mean, a tourist would be watching, and it'd be, it's just the same as watching a dance. But everything, everything was also ingrained in the spiritual sense. By giving you a cup of Yangona, Yangona was, it is the drink of the gods, you might say. But here we are, and we were told that Yangona was evil simply because it was used during the rituals of the old gods. But the angona that was offered, offered in a cup, it was a combination of water and also a combination of land. The color, muddy, yes. The taste, uh, numb, numbing actually. But it was our way of telling you that our lands and our waters welcome you, and you are now part of it. When the new ways came, at first they were at loggerheads, but then as they came to understand what these things stood for, they started to make way. Unfortunately, when they made way, when compromise was reached, human nature could not hold with a compromise. That therein we have churches that say that Yangona is still evil. And there are other churches that say that Yangona is not evil. It's just people that are evil. Yangona is but a drink. I'll leave that up to God. Is it possible, in your opinion, to decolonize religion? decolonize. Yes, there is. First, you got to understand that the practices that we have now are not the practices. Then you have to understand the context of these religion, religious texts or whatnot. And you have to understand therein that some of those have been blurred by a different culture. You then just have to go back to decolonize means to strip away any foreign 
influence. So if, by learning the culture of the people from whom the religion started, you should be able to get a fair idea of what needs to be taken away. And then you will understand far better than what was given. For the last question, where do you see young people's relationships with religion evolving in the future? At this moment in time, young people are finding their way all over Fiji. Some talk church, they are, as we say, churchified. There are others who wish for deeper understanding. I think, like I told a pastor of mine, we can no longer just preach at them. Gone are those days because if you just preach at them from a pulpit, you don't give them a chance to ask questions. Let them ask the questions and answer them without any anger, without any doubt. Answer them as you will. I hope you can make something of this. Malo. Zuzmasi Toa, my Fijian brother, for that wonderful, introspective, poetic piece that hit all the right emotions, as per usual. May his grandfather's soul continue to rest peacefully. Many great points were made in this piece that may even be somewhat unique to Fiji. We've discussed in the first episode on decolonization, Fiji's unique history of colonization, so I won't go into it again here except to say that it makes Toa's piece mean that much more to me knowing what I know now about their history. Toa refers to a they in his piece. White people who came to colonize his land in the late 1800s. By then, Fijian society, as Toa mentioned, already had complex connections to the land, to each other, their ancestors, and it was deeply intertwined with rituals and spirituality. Toa used beautiful examples of describing emotions to show how this spirituality plays out in the language, and because they are people who use ritual in major parts of their lives, this makes it somewhat easier than maybe to integrate religion into all parts of their lives too, alongside their own rituals, if missionaries and church leaders are creative. Toa mentions how certain aspects of rituals and daily life become, become portrayed as wicked, like offering up a cup of nangonya, 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 I'm really horrible at saying <laughs> offering up a cup of that drink, which I cannot pronounce, and which is the same as offering up a cup of your land in the metaphorical and physical sense. This drink, made from the land, was deemed bad in the eyes of missionaries, and so it became bad in the eyes of churchgoers and society, and this is something that people today and in the future will just have to come to terms with through their own means. And not just in relating to this one drink, but in relating to everything that became deemed wicked. Even so, Toa mentioned that he believes that religion can be decolonized. And I loved how matter-of-fact it sounded too. But I think what he was getting more to... The root of it really was not necessarily decolonization, but 
in my view, I think he was talking more about re-indigenization. And that was a great thing to bring up. Because, like Toa said, decolonizing is abolishing colonizer constructs, which we are actually totally on board with. But anyway, what he said was more along the lines of a common theme in Deep Pacific. Take what you have already and make it work for you and your fellow believers. Put some color into the ekru. Put some flavor into the mix. Make it indigenous. I am not advocating that people in the Pacific go and start a cult. Heck no. I'm simply saying that if you already have the structures in place, then you can proceed forward with the awareness of history and continue to find comfort in the religion you grew up with, even though its history is distasteful. Important to note that not everyone agrees that this is something that can be done. But, you know what? That's why we're here. To bridge the gap between these two binaries. To show you that binary and linear thinking simply do not apply to the Pacific. We are shades of blue here, not black and white. Toa's piece was a great example of integrating religion into your everyday indigenous existence. And perhaps Itoke culture is uniquely positioned in so many ways to be able to accept religion somewhat better. Who knows? But if you think back to Rhonda's beautiful piece on artivism in episode 5, Rhonda is another Itauke who was also raised to love her religion uniquely. Her upbringing and how her family allowed her to shine through religion, how she grew up at least with the acceptance of many people important to her, which is important for a trans woman in a heavily religious culture. Because of this, she was able to thrive and embrace her true identity, though the path was by no means easy. In a similar fashion, Toa can also embrace his true identity as a man of God. These perspectives are so important because it is different in other parts of the Pacific, as you will see in our next submission. Again, Toa, it is a true honor to uplift your voice. My name is Teotuahiri. I am Maohi. My family comes from Tahiti, but I am currently a settler on the illegally occupied kingdom of Hawaii. Maururu Kalani for having me here. I am so incredibly grateful for the space you have created. My dad is a priest. He is Episcopalian, if that means anything to you. I grew up going to church every Sunday leaving home by 6.30 just to spend a couple hours just there before Mass started. I grew up thinking Christianity was the only thing out there, that that was my only option. I even spent three years at an all-girls Christian school, where I continued to learn of the relationship between Indigenous people and Christianity. The school I went to was founded by Queen Emma, one of the last reigning queens of the Hawaiian Kingdom. Like many of the keiki fortunate enough to grow up in the Pacific, I grew up hearing the stories of our gods. My mother would tell me of Pele and how she once saw her down by Makapu'u one night. Not far from her famous chair, the fiery goddess is known to stop travelers for a ride. We are taught never to refuse. I remember the stories of Menehune helping to build Lo'i night marchers beating their drums in the distance, the existence of pole. My best friend and I were talking about Christianity today. 
Neither of us had ever felt connection to the God they presented to us. I grew up going to church every Sunday, confused as to why I was the only one God would not bless with his spirit. The prayers felt meaningless on my tongue. The pews were always uncomfortable, and I didn't like the cold of the brick. When I learned about the atrocities Christianity has been used to justify, I understood why I felt no connection. My mother tells me about the nuns that taught her in Tahiti, how they would beat her when she would dare to speak Te Reo Tahiti. They beat our people into believing in their God. They took our limitless, boundless love and locked us behind closets and under class ceilings. As my dear friend Kavana Kapohua said, we must leave behind Christianity in order to decolonize. Christianity is the product of our own colonizers. We have our own gods, our own beliefs, our own way of life. Submerge your hands within the soft soil of the awaiting Aina, and you will feel her. She is waiting for you. The energy of the earth, her mana. I'm not going to tell you what to believe in. Believe in whatever you want. These are just the conclusions I have come to after years of experience within several Christian institutions. Our people never restricted our definitions of love. Christianity, the handy tool of colonization, has served to limit how we are allowed to experience love. Decolonizing love entails releasing ourselves of the confines of racism, sexism, homophobia, and transphobia. These oppressive structures are all the product of colonization and its sidekick, Christianity. Pre-European contact, our people were free to love whoever they wanted. Monogamy, patriarchy, homophobia, none of these things existed for our people. Stories of the Mahu, blessed by the gods with the ability to heal, have begun to resurface after years of transphobic suppression. If we are to heal as a people, we must learn to leave Christianity behind us. We must find our ways back to the land, the Aina, the Fenua. She is waiting. Marururoa for listening. Sainama Asitea for your lovely contribution to this important topic, sharing her view as a diasporic Maohi as well as someone who is a part of the LGBTQ plus community. That was the most beautiful way of saying F Christianity that I've ever had the pleasure to listen to. Tea Toahere's previous pieces all include this same resounding theme, which she managed to tie into pretty much all of her contributions. The theme of decolonizing love and what that means and how we can disassociate colonizer restrictions on how we see ourselves and each other. This perspective is so important because in the Pacific, our LGBTQ plus familia have been and are still currently discriminated against or made to feel shame for the way they feel. And that's not right. And this might not apply to all people who identify as queer, but... If it even applies to one person, then we need to support that person extra. Just like the last paper we discussed was talking about radical healing, this is how we can radically heal. Support LGBTQ plus Pacifica people.
Take what you can that gives you comfort in religion and leave the rest, like homophobia, transphobia, and racism, to rot. Shout out, especially to those listeners in the Church of Latter-day Saints, and to all of our listeners from the Philippines and other highly religious societies as well, because I've been listening to your struggles, and it breaks my heart, but I see you. We at Deep Pacific and in the collective see you, and in this space we are creating, you are loved and welcomed. I'll end this with a final quote from Taya. Our people never restricted our definitions of love. Christianity, the handy tool of colonization, has served to limit how we are allowed to experience love. Keep that in mind if it resonates with you. Maururua, Tea, for your important contribution today once again. It is an honor to uplift your voice. This is actually quite different yet again from our next submission from RT, who also spoke on our Queer Pacifica episode about how embracing religion allowed him to stay true to himself and to radically love himself again. So here it is. Half a day. My name is RT. I would like to start off by announcing that I am Catholic and I am a God-loving and God-fearing man. That wasn't always the case. <laughs> you know, so many years ago, I was on a journey um, to find peace. And during that time, I didn't know how much I needed that peace until I came into an accepting point with my religion. You see, my journey to become a God-fearing man was not ideal. Or maybe it was. But to sum it up, I've had years where I felt homeless in life. And I felt that I really needed to make sense of everything that was going on at that time. It took years for me to recognize the immensity and significance of love in my religion. I allowed my religious faith to become the focal point of my life. And I can honestly and humbly say that religion is so essential and it's so universal. Whether we gather in prayer, in meditation, or ceremonial rituals, Religion binds us together for the common good. It allows us to pray for better health for ourselves, for our family, for our friends. It gives us hope for happiness. And it allows us to have the audacity to love. Religion sustains our way of life. It cultivates our thinking, our actions, our emotions. It even heals us in unexplainable, tremendous ways. You know, now that I have come to the peak of my journey in life, and now that I have found my home and my religion, I see that faith is made to be put into action. Religious value is made to be put into action. And the beauty of it all is to preach the gospel and when necessary, use words. God bless you.
Sisus Maasi to my awesome Chamorro Guinanguahan RT, sharing their view as a youth leader in his church and a loving and God-fearing man. RT always mentions his religion in almost every piece he contributes. So when we decided that we would tackle this monumental topic, I knew he would have a unique perspective to give us. This perspective is unique because although I am also Chamorro, we don't all feel the same way towards religion, specifically Catholicism which is what many Chamorros identify with. While he had a long, hard journey to make religion a priority in his life, it was always a given in mine and with many other Pacific peoples. RT believes in his heart that religion binds us together for the common good. He's not wrong there. Religion, by its very nature, groups people together to pray and act collectively. In places such as the Philippines or Samoa, where there are low wages and the quality of life for many is dependent on a source of money that is never enough, religion takes the place of what should be provided by the government or community. Churches are often the groups that take action after typhoons and devastation, because in many of these places, grassroots organizations and local organizations are not adequately funded or might not even exist. Churches, on the other hand, are plentiful, and they are organizations that can have incredibly powerful reach, both with funding and politically. They are, in these communities, the providers. Many would argue to say that religion itself, through colonization or neocolonialism, helped to create these unequal conditions in the first place, such as Kavena, who will be discussing this in his piece. Those people are also right. We cannot deny that if our histories were different from the very beginning, who knows what might have been? Who knows if we would have created conditions for settler colonialism, racism, discrimination against black and indigenous people in the first place if the religious missionaries had never claimed our lands to use as resources for Spain in the first place, in the case of the Philippines and the Marianas. This is something that also must be reckoned with, but... True believers are able to look at this ugly history and forgive. That's great for them. Sizus Masi Arti Pareno, it is an honor to uplift your voice. Yaurana Talofa. As a part Samoan with Samoan ancestry and family living there, I was able to see how religious an island nation Samoa is compared to islands in French Polynesia. I'm not a huge fan of the current motto Samoa has, which is Samoa, meaning Samoa is founded upon God. Um, if Atua actually means Fanua, then I mean I'm 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 happy with that. But if Atua actually refers to a Christian God, then I'm not I won't be I won't be too happy with that. If there are Samoans out there who could shed some light on that very odd, strange motto, well, please feel free to share your thoughts with me. Shed some light on this, on this thing. Another thing I'm a bit disappointed with is that in French Polynesia, a lot of us here strengthening our ties with Tereo Maohi are doing it through Bible studies. I've got lots of friends saying if we speak Tahitian really well, it's because we did Bible studies and that really helped. 
we should be able to learn our language without having to do it through a very biased media. And that's about it. Anyway, keep safe. I hope you find spirituality in the Moana, in the land, in your respective fenuas, and in your relationships with the people you love. Until next time. Okay, fa, nana. Sainam Asi Tamiti for your awesome contribution to this topic. Tamiti is the one who calls it like it is. Because she grew up diasporically for much of her life, she was able to see the problems occurring back in Samoa and Tahiti, where her family stays and where she now has returned to, and she's able to call it out. This, among many other reasons, is why returning diaspora are so important to our societies. People might not like what they say, but if their heart is in the right place and they are grounded, then the least we can do is let them say their piece. Tamiti's pieces are often fiery and strong, and this one is no different. She asks why the motto of Samoa is the way it is, and what it means. She also asks why Maohi learning te reo Tahiti back home do it best through Bible study. I can definitely see where her concern lies, especially knowing that she is a language teacher. By associating te reo Maohi with religion, then the entire worldview that language learner will have will be colored by colonization and religion. Not always a good thing if this is done without that awareness. If any of our Samoan listeners would like to reach out to us to answer Tamiti's question, please do so at Deep Pacific Pod on Instagram or Twitter, or you can reach out to Tamiti herself if you follow her on our list of Deep Pacifica on Twitter. Feel free to give her your view. I would personally love to hear it as well. If you haven't heard her piece on settlers or identity, please check them out. I could listen to her all day, to be honest. Thank you again, Tamiti Maururoa, for your insightful perspective as always. It is an honor to uplift your voice. How about we take a quick break to stretch our legs, massage your temples, loosen your jaw, maybe drink some water, and we will be back with more great pieces for you. Before I begin, I want to acknowledge the journey I've been on with this question and that my views will maybe sway whichever way in the future and that I hope my experiences resonate with whoever listens to this podcast as they're on their own journey. So here's what I've come to know about Pacific Islanders and religion. Before I begin, it's also important to know that I am a born and raised Catholic like many Chamorro people. I'm not going to go too much into my beliefs right away. I'm definitely still trying to figure that part of myself out. So this is really just a pinpoint of my experiences. There were a lot of moments in my more formative years where I never quite bought into certain things about the faith. I questioned certain things within the doctrines or the dogmas. But if there was anything that pulled me in, it was the powerful acts of prayer. You know, when I wasn't falling asleep in mass or checking out a cute boy in the other pew or something. And it was also the more communal and social aspect of it all. Things that are also very similar to things we do in the culture when you think about it. 
If you remember my piece about the family episode, I talked about the extended family having more meaning to me than my own blood growing up. But that was really because I spent more time with these people and there wasn't drama, you know? These people were part of a religious group and they were family to me. So for a long time growing up, this is what the faith had meant to me. It was these people. And I had seen and deeply felt the power of prayer. It was also what I knew best. So the the times that I really felt the power of prayer that I can pinpoint, these two times in my life, it had really gotten me through some emotional patches. You know, and it was when my grandpa had gotten sick with um, these lung problems. I'm not going to go into too much detail on that, otherwise I'll cry the entire podcast. And then my mother had ovarian cysts that were caught right on time. And this is where the powerful or the prayerful part of my life really kicked in. You know, prayer, it's really just a way of centering yourself. My freshman year of college, I had to give a speech on things I was passionate about. So I talked about music, of course, and the importance of believing in something higher than yourself. I feel like I really touched on these two things because they were what got me through those times in my life, you know. Going back to the latter half of my speech, you know, when you believe in something higher than yourself, this could mean God with a capital G, gods, your ancestors, the spirits in whatever planes of existence, and honestly just the land and the sea that surrounds us. Whatever keeps you afloat will work. If there's one thing I've noticed in life is the difference between people that believe in some kind of higher being, the best way possible where you don't use it to push your colonizer agendas, and those that don't. But then again, that's also a different story too when you think about it. Now for those of us that are in this weird limbo, I'm right there with you. I like to point out we're still good people, of course, regardless of our religious and spiritual struggles. We're not going to go to hell or anything for trying to figure that out. That's what I believe, at least. What brought me to this point was around the time of my kind of cultural awakening when I was learning more about colonization and the history of the Hawaiian people, you know, because I'm going to school there, and um, the Chamorro people, my people as well. Like, really learning about that kind of stuff. And at the time, I was asked by someone that had a lot of importance to me. They asked me how I can live with the tensions of being religious and indigenous. Now that probably wasn't the exact question, but that's where it led me to today. For quite some time, I did what I knew, you know, and I um, sat with my thoughts in a church, which was still comfortable, but I wasn't sure exactly who I was praying to anymore. So I would still do the sign of the cross, the prayers that still had some meaning to me intact you know did the holy water stuff and i still felt weird calling on god things were just different for me from that point on and this was all also because i knew the rules you know catholic school born and raised the rules and how the belief systems worked and that faith is not something that is questioned it's just something you have so i was questioning all of that. Throughout all of this, I knew that I owed it to myself to figure it out because I couldn't deny my truth, you know. 
I couldn't deny what I had felt in the past and I couldn't reword it or find some way around it because that's what it was for me. But I also couldn't deny that it's probably also my ancestors rejoicing in this kind of revelation and time where I was on the road to becoming a whole lot more in tune with myself. I would be lying if I said it was an easy, quick, and painless process, but this change of perspective along with everything that I was just so comfortable with and that I knew. I was just desperately trying to find peace throughout all of this. Now I'm honestly trying to find better foundations for both of these sides of myself and if there's anything I'm certain about right now is that the indigenous side of me is going to have this time in my life for however long that might be and probably for the rest of my life, especially with what I know now. There's no going back for me on this and I'm, I'm only moving forward with what I know. I honestly feel the most comfortable with myself than I have in any point of my life so far and it feels more like I'm aligning with the indigenous woman I was always meant to be. I don't have all the answers in the world, I still have quite a number of things I would probably point out. But I just hope if there's anyone else that connects with what I have to say, I think there needs to be a whole lot more conversations about those that are currently going through what I'm going through and that it's just not so clear cut for us, for people like me, I guess. Please believe me when I say that I understand the views of all people on this kind of stuff. If you only identify as religious, if you only want to identify as indigenous, or if you're struggling with both. I mean, our culture and religion is so intertwined and so colonized that it will take a lot of healing, heartbreak, even anger, all rolled into one or a couple conversations. I'm here for it all as long as I'm with my people, all my indigenous people, most especially Pacific Islanders for me, of course. I'm hoping we will all one day realize the power of our own cultures, our own ways and our own belief systems and it'll lead us to live a life that resembled what it was like before colonization and as united peoples. I really think that we owe it to ourselves to figure this tension out because that is how we'll move forward the way that we're supposed to. Sizusmasi Simone for your contribution to this very last episode of season one of Deep Pacific. Simone mentions how she got into religion. Like she mentioned in her previous piece on the family episode, she talked about the people she considered family. This family to her was not her close blood relatives, but rather the members of her church whom she grew close to because of differences with her own family. Religion brought and kept them together. Simone's perspective is important because she enjoyed her religion more for the social and communal aspect of it in addition to her being able to pray and basically meditate in church during services. She spoke about how she feels she is finding herself as an indigenous Chamorro now, and that there's no going back on herself anymore. She's beginning to embrace her culture, and to her, it is not so clear-cut to tread the line between being indigenous and being religious. For real. 
Her faith was tied to her more through her people at the church and through her powerful acts of prayer, which got her through difficult times in her life. Prayer to God, your ancestors, the Pacific Ocean, or to multiple gods is indeed powerful because it forms a connection between you and that entity or entities. That is what Simone questioned. And actually, she brought up a great point about how she is currently still living with tensions between her indigenous and religious identities. She feels weird calling on God because she started questioning her faith and she couldn't lie to herself that she wasn't questioning. But Catholicism, like many other religions, tells you that you're not a true believer if you question. And that is not how indigenous people work. And this part of religion really does isolate you. Like Taya said, those who grew up religious often think that their religion is their only option. Yet, she had never felt a connection to the God Christianity presented. Taya grew up going to church every Sunday, confused as to why she was the only one God did not bless with his spirit. That was me. That was Simone. That is many of us here in the Pacific. We are a crowd, a wave, a growing movement all across the globe of Pacifica people disillusioned with the religion our parents thrust onto us. I am still a Roman Catholic out of respect for the traditions, but I don't believe in a white old man in the sky looking like Gandalf would be looking out for me and my spirit. Shout out to those listeners out there struggling with these feelings. There is nothing wrong with you, and I hope that you find peace by hearing others like you on this episode today. I also wanted to say that I loved that she mentioned that because she went to school in Hawaii, she also learned of their history with colonization, religion, and culture, which made her reflect and look deeper into her own culture's history and ties with religion and colonization. This is exactly what I hope to do by starting Deep Pacific and starting this collective of Pacific people. I wanted to bring us together to reflect on our similarities and our differences respectfully in more than just 140 characters. And I hoped that by doing so, we would emerge on the other side of these episodes feeling more whole, our cups being refilled with each other's mana. As one of our awesome listeners on Twitter described, soul food. This is an act of radical healing. By listening to our stories, you, my awesome listener, are healing your own wounds. And I admire that. Susmasi, and thank you again, Simone, for your contribution to this topic. Good luck finding yourself out there, girl. I am right there with you. It is an honor to uplift your voice. Aloha mai kako. This is Kavana Kapahua speaking on the topic of religion for a Deep Pacific podcast. Mahalo again, Kalani, for having me. My relationship with religion is a long-standing one and a contentious one, uh, to put it lightly. Both my parents are Christian. My mom's side is Catholic. My dad's side is Protestant. I went to a Christian elementary school uh, in my hometown of Kailua growing up, and I went to a Catholic university for my undergrad. I basically was raised believing in Christianity, going to church on Sunday kind of stuff, until probably middle school uh, is when that became not a thing. Um, yeah, middle school is when I stopped subscribing to that. And um, 
that was when I started questioning it. And then high school was when I just really fell out of it. Uh, by college, I no longer believed in it. And it was an adversarial relationship, to put it lightly. And that kind of leads into the whole idea of tensions between indigeneity and religion. If we look at our history in the Pacific, Christianity in particular has not had a very beneficial or positive impact on Hawaii or any other Pacific Island nation or people. It has been used as a weapon against our people in almost every regard. It has been used as a weapon to de-educate us, to destroy our culture, to suppress our belief systems, to break up our indigenous style of relationships and pilina, or relationships in general. It's been used to dictate the way white people demand that Pacifica love. It's been used to dictate the way we see the world and interact with it. Uh, and to me, I think that it stripped us of a lot of the unique beauty that our worldview represented. And so I don't see Christianity as a positive force in this world. So fair warning now, I'm going to be very blunt with my critiques of Christianity, in particular, the fact that it has been used to dictate the way Pacifica love and the way we see the world and interact with it. I grew up in Hawaii, obviously, and many Hawaiians nowadays are Christian because they were raised Christian by their families who were raised Christian before them. And it has been a long tide into our community since the kingdom period. Our ali'i adopted Christianity. However, in many regards, Christianity was a political move, not necessarily a facet of their actual belief system. Ali'i in Ikavakahiko in the olden days played political games with each other and adopting a new akua or god was a way of, for them to acquire new mana, was a way for them to raise their position, their status, uh, and to you know raise their prestige and gain political points. And nowadays, many of our people believe in it and prescribe to it and practice it, which of course is up to them, that's their decision. However, Christianity itself has been used as a weapon to suppress our culture, to destroy our history, to dictate every part of our lives, and in most cases in a very harmful way. You know, it's very clear Pacifica have always adopted a very communal family style rather than a nuclear family style that is uh, common in European society. It's based around the community, less so the mother, father, and child. Uh, and this also has to do with many Pacifica cultures being comfortable with polygamous relationships, whereas Europeans are not, uh, at least not openly. And in that case, religion came in and really especially Christianity, came in and really disrupted many of those ways that we, as Pacifica people, love. Uh, it dictated who we love. You know, it demonized the love of same-sex relationships. It demonized being mahu or being of a third gender or, you know, being transgender or any of those things. It demonized that. And there's been so much damage, psychological and cultural and historical damage and trauma that's been placed upon our people through the weapon that is Christianity that we are still working through and decolonizing today. So if you ask me if, in my opinion, can we decolonize religion? No, I might catch flack for this, but I don't think that Christianity can or should remain in Hawaii. I think its impact on our people is solely negative. And I think that if Hawaiians want to continue believing in it, that's fine. That's their choice. But I don't think it's positive in any way, shape, or form because it is a completely diametrically opposed worldview compared to what we are. Hawaiians have a very close relationship with the land, as many indigenous people do. And that's not something often included in Christianity. 
it also prescribes so many European or Western in general ways of looking at things, especially modern Christianity, just because it's while the religion itself may have been based on events in the Middle East, it's been changed very drastically by Europeans. And their worldview is diametrically opposed to ours, as we can see. Thank you, capitalism. And if we as a community want to heal from the traumas that this religion has inflicted on us, I feel like that religion should be left in the past. And I know a lot of people have been able to find healing and community in these organized religions, which is fine. But there's also alternatives to that. I don't think it's necessarily needed. So much of the the lore of Christianity is problematic for a Hawaiian or indigenous Pacifica worldview. I mean, so much of it is used to justify homophobia. It's so much of it is used to justify many things. And a lot of Christianity nowadays picks and chooses of it, the scriptures that it wants to listen to. I mean, if you really read the Bible, and I have, there are scriptures that dictate wearing certain types of clothes. It enforces subservience of women to men, patriarchy, essentially. And so many of these problematic practices that pervade our world today and that really tear apart our communities. And so in my view, I don't think there's a way to decolonize uh, Christianity or at least religion in general. I think that spirituality and indigeneity is a very great substitute for that. I think if anyone is unfamiliar with what indigenous spirituality or, or religion could look like, I urge you to look no further than Mauna Kea and the 2019 movement up on the Mauna at the Pu'uhonua and the way indigenous spirituality grounded so much of the movement there and the way it brought so many people together and brought so many families and communities together and also grounded so many people and brought them back to understanding their culture and sparked that connection. Christianity might be able to give people a sense of community in their churches, but I don't think it'll ever allow people to understand their ancestors in the way that indigenous spirituality does. It doesn't help you learn yourself more. Uh, so much of Christianity is rooted in uh, almost a self-hatred in a way. Uh, it's like fearing God and um, God demanding your subservience and so many of these things. It's almost, in my view, dehumanizing. And the reason I say this is because I'm an abolitionist. And for anyone who's familiar with the prison system, we are well aware of the ways in which Christianity has infiltrated the prison system to make it the sole version of salvation for those who are incarcerated. For those who are not familiar, Christian and church groups often gain access to prisons in order to gain access to incarcerated people in order to convert them, telling them things along the lines of that they have to be held accountable for their decisions, they are to blame for what they did. It enforces a lot of self-hatred and that the only way for them to make amends for the crimes that they supposedly have committed is to repent and seek Jesus which I think is a very harmful practice. And it's a very harmful mindset to impose upon people. Um, maybe Christianity in these areas helps people get sober from drugs or any of these things, but the self-hate it imposes is extremely harmful in my mind. Um, so many of these people who come out of prison end up feeling that they are lesser than or feeling that they, yeah, feeling dehumanized and then having internalized that dehumanization. And that's not the way it should be, but that is something that Christianity has regularly enforced. And so it doesn't match up with indigenous Pacifica ways of holding people accountable or community accountability, such as in Hawaiian, Pu'uhonua, there are other ways that we hold our community members accountable for wrongs they do against the rest of the community, rather than imprisoning them in a box and then demanding that they repent to Jesus for their supposed crimes. So even today, I still see so much of this negative 
impacts of religion and Christianity. And I think that as we, Pacifica, especially the younger generations, connect more and more with our indigenous spirituality and our indigenous heritage and our indigenous ways of seeing the world, that we will continue to find that those ways allow us to connect with our islands, allow us to connect with each other and with ourselves much better than Western religions. And should we ever come to a place where we're able to leave Christianity as a trauma of our past, we'll be able to reconnect with the way our ancestors saw the world in a much deeper way. There's so much in our worldview that can build our relationship with not only the deities in Pacifica religion, Pacifica religions, sorry, plural, but also the ways in which the natural systems of our world work and interact. In my view, I also see um, Pacific or indigenous religions as being much more amicable to the advances of the modern world and, and, and sciences, whether it be indigenous science or Western science, just the understanding of the world links much better uh, than Christianity, which has time and time again proven to be very stubborn in accepting change. To me, if we want to decolonize, we also have to decolonize the way we interact with spirituality. And Christianity enforces a very singular way of being able to be spiritual. And I don't think that's healthy for anyone, just as education can't be enforced in a singular way because everyone learns differently, everyone practices spirituality differently. And if we want a healthy community, we need to embrace that rather than demanding that everyone submit to the one true way and the one true God. We need to embrace that, you know, there are different ways of seeing the world and interacting with it. And I think that as Pacific Islanders, our indigenous way of interacting with our islands and our, our worldview of our islands and ocean is much better suited to our own indigenous spirituality rather than a Western religion brought by colonizers with the intent of wiping out our worldview, our identity, and our heritage. Mahalo nui loa for listening. Sainama Asi Kavena sharing his view as a badass Pacifica abolitionist and Kanaka Maoli with such great insight. Kavena hits so many important points in his piece. He described how so much of Christianity is rooted in an almost self-hatred And I thought that was very interesting because I haven't ever heard it put that way. It made me realize it's somewhat true. And it reminded me of that extreme offshoot of Christianity called Opus Dei, whose practices really did seem like self-hate to me. Wearing a metal sealis that digs sharp metal into their thighs, using a whip or spiked chain to hurt themselves weakly to repent, They're also known to take cold showers only, remain silent, and all sorts of other things. Now, Opus Dei is an extreme, but this is still Christianity, and a good example of what Kavena was talking about. He hit another great point about how self-hate gets internalized by followers of the faith because Christianity, as we mentioned in the introduction, enforces racism, and being unworthy or feeling like subhuman. The example he gave was the prison system and how prisoners are often introduced to religion in a way that only makes them feel shame and forces them to repent for their supposed crimes to achieve healing. Does this sound like something our ancestors would embrace? I don't think so. We see the negative impacts of this today. Kavena touched on an important point. Honestly, the most important point to me, that 
because these religions were adapted to a place that is so different from the Pacific, they didn't allow us to cultivate and maintain our connection with the land. Specifically, he said, Hawaiians have a very close relationship with the land, as many indigenous people do, and that's not something that's often included with Christianity. Wind that back. Hear it again. That is so important because it made me realize that this truly was what I had been lacking. This was what I needed to see in Catholicism and never did. Why didn't they care about the ocean and corals and land like I did? Because they didn't have it. Pacifica have always adopted a communal way of living. He mentions that Christianity incorporates a worldview that is diametrically opposed or just completely opposite of our indigenous cultures and way of living. Accountability, community care, and sustainability. Totally at odds with all of that. This ties into decolonization because, as he said, to heal is to decolonize. And to decolonize is to extract ourselves from homophobia, transphobia, patriarchy, and other problematic practices that Christianity installed. I think that spirituality and indigeneity is a very great substitute for that, is what he said. He gave the great example of Mauna Kea and how it grounded people, sparked their connection with their culture, and brought them all together to defend their Mauna. Many other Pacifica people also defended the Mauna in solidarity. I have included a great YouTube video link about Mauna Kea and I urge you to check out the Ihumatao movement as well that went on in Aotearoa because I feel like they were both monumental for connecting indigenous Pacifica forces together in solidarity. These corporations and parachute scientists better watch your back because the way I see it, these movements will only grow from here on out. Mahalo nui loa again, Kavena, for your important piece today and for speaking the final piece in the first season of this idea called Deep Pacific. It is an honor to uplift your voice. That was a great and well-rounded group of narratives. The differences in how we all saw religion as a whole and how we practice our religion were striking, but not surprising considering all the ways and deferring timelines of colonization everyone had. I hope that you kept in mind that we are just ordinary people practicing extraordinary acts of radical healing, of community healing, of trying to find our communities within the spiritual and physical realms of this land and sea. So what are we trying to accomplish with this episode? What kind of indigenous futurism do you come up with when imagining people decolonizing or rather re-indigenizing their religions in the Pacific. Let me ask you, my dear Deep Pacifica, knowing what you know about religion in the Pacific, what are your thoughts on organized religion? Do you personally think that you can decolonize your religion? Has this episode brought you some clarity? I know that many have very complicated thoughts on this. If it takes a while, that's okay. I totally understand any feelings of frustration and feeling like you're being pulled between two different ways. Remember that things don't always have to be a binary. Waves in the ocean don't move from left to right or east to west. 
They move in all directions, depending on the moon, the wind, the land, the currents and tides. You are like the waves, and like the waves, you too will find your way. I should say religion and decolonization movements around the world are at the point that they are today because of many movements. But black people, specifically Algerians, are to thank for these movements gaining the steam they have now. Here is a passage from the text Decolonizing Christianity about it. The events following in Algeria during the 1950s and 60s became catalysts for a re-evaluation of the role of Christianity and Christian institutions around the world. The Algerian conflict was just one ripple, albeit one of the most tragic, in the global wave of political uprisings and negotiations that signaled the end of the European empires. Yet, the Algerian War of Independence from 1954 to 1962 forced Christians in both France and Algeria to face the realities of what had been until then abstract discussions about the problems of colonialism or colonized people's right to self-determination. The movement in Algeria managed to gain a following and succeed. The book described the process as provincializing Christianity, or making it local, making it more accessible. By doing this, they undertook the project of decolonizing. Unless they demonstrated solidarity with colonized people in their desire for independence, these Christians would lose whatever moral authority they had left and would cease to be welcome in the new independent nation-states that emerged from the process of decolonization. It is up to us to decide whether we free our oppressors from our oppression. There are a few ways forward, like I mentioned earlier. For us to decolonize ourselves, we must be aware of the separation between and even the juxtaposition between our indigeneity what makes us and our culture so unique, our origin stories, our language, our values and practices, and separate that from organized religion, at least in our minds. It doesn't hurt a true believer to look into the light and see all the sins that have been committed to their land and people in the name of religion, and that continue until this day. As for the ways forward, the way I see it, religious people can do one of three things. They can abandon their organized religion. They can ignore decolonialism and go on as always. Or they can incorporate decolonialism into their religious practices. Those are all the things I and now you have seen people speaking about here today. Kavena spoke about abandoning religion in favor of indigenous religions. Toa spoke about incorporating decolonialism and indigeneity into his religion. So, now that we have that covered, how do we decolonize? How should we proceed now? Let us remind ourselves that cultures change. They are not static. And now that we've discussed what religion means to us, where do we see religion's place in our lives evolving in the future? I have it in mind in season two to do our next religion episode, naturally, into ancestral religion and most likely indigenous futurism. Since we are, after all, still alive today and still indigenous and will continue to be here long into the future as long as these damn colonizers don't kill our planet. Shout out to you, my dear listener, for wanting to come into this space to listen and reflect on your own relationship 
with such a contentious topic. May your ancestors guide you and protect you on this perilous path of learning and trauma. Remember to reach out when you need to. That brings us to the end of the narrative portion of the episode. (sighs) How about you take another break, drink some water, and we will be right back with an awesome paper out of the journal entitled Climatic Change when we come back. Have a day to all my Guam listeners. This little ad is for the good people of Guahan who are tuning in and love coffee. Have you tried Cafe Gucha yet? Cafe Gucha is a locally owned and operated organic coffee and tea spot in Tuman, Guam. Come and support the cafe that does beach cleanups, composts their coffee, tea, and food scraps, and supports other local businesses as well. Cafe Gucha in Tuman is open for curbside service 7 to 2 weekdays except Thursdays and 7 to 4 on the weekends. Our mascots, the rescue boonie dogs Potato and Mayo, will be outside waiting for you. Welcome back. Our scientific paper today is entitled Representations of Pacific Islands and Climate Change in U.S., U.K. and Australia Newspaper Reporting. It was published in the journal Climatic Change in February of 2020, the link to which I have included in the show notes. It was authored by Megan M. Shea, James Painter, and Shannon Osaka as a collaboration between these researchers from the University of Oxford and Stanford University. Cool. Shout out to them. So why is this significant? Upon reading this paper, the first thing I noticed was that it was written in October of 2019. So like 10 years ago, it feels. Also, the focus was on the US, UK, and Australian papers. So places with large white colonizer and settler populations. I was thinking about whether the U.S. umbrella also included where I am from, the Marianas, and other places like American Samoa, which are a weird gray area since our colonizer can't get its act together. Moving on, this study examines newspaper articles about Pacific Islands and climate change in American, British, and Australian newspapers from 1999 to 2018, analyzing volume, content, and dominant narratives. That was taken directly from the paper. Reporting on Pacific Islands and climate change focuses heavily on who and what are at risk from climate impacts. Reporting on solutions is less frequent and dominated by discussions of migration. This overemphasis on vulnerability potentially downplays the importance of the resiliency and action of Pacific Island communities and positions the Pacific as a site for climate catastrophe, rather than climate justice. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Very true. Pacific islands are often depicted as examples of climate change vulnerability. And some people might disagree, but being someone from the Pacific, I feel like for me personally, it's like half-half. We see climate narratives about us all the time in the media, yet the dominant global coverage feels to me to constantly exclude us or gloss over us. But that's just me. Keep in mind that this was an analysis of print media from major newspapers as sources. So it excludes television, social media in some ways because historically newspapers were a good representation of what's on TV since it is more traditional 
And the ease of accessing archives, unlike television, is just way better when it comes to newspaper. Also, as mentioned, limited data access makes analysis of change over time difficult. So, take this study with some grains of Hawaiian sea salt. So, why is this important? These representations impact not only how the world feels about us, but how we feel about ourselves. Narratives of climate refugees and vulnerability may challenge our conceptions of mobility and agency. This was an example in the paper. In Tuvalu, migration can be considered a source of economic and social strength for the people of Tuvalu, adapting to climate change in the long term rather than necessarily a chronic problem to be solved. However, many Pacific Islanders, especially those living on low-lying atolls, are considered to be on the front line of climate change. And representations of Pacific Islanders as the first climate change refugees are used to create an apparently visible embodiment of the effects of climate change. So this conflict between discourse on climate refugees and Tuvaluan concepts of migration is political, producing new configurations of inequity as island people are denied agency. Basically, these depictions of us as Pacific Islanders make us seem helpless. Thus, representations of Pacific Islands and climate change have social and political power. The use of Pacific Islands to concretize climate science's statistical abstractions can be seen as a new form of eco-colonialism. Le true. I feel seen. I really like that they pointed that out because it's really true. Um, eco-colonialism, that is definitely going to be a larger problem in the upcoming discourse on climate change for sure, I feel. Another quote. While people's own experiences also shape how they conceptualize the world, news media are an important intermediary in that process. I mean, that's why you listen to this podcast. We are here to bring you this valuable info and connection to you. News media have finite newspaper pages, so the amount of space dedicated to one topic displaces other topics. Research has shown that broadly... Issues that get more attention relative to others are more likely to seem important to audiences. And specifically, that attention to climate change in the media influences the general publics. When I read that, my mind was blown. Framing of climate change, for example, by the news media is super important, which is why it's always important to acknowledge where it is coming from. If you've ever wondered why there are Pacific Islanders out here, still doing super consumptive practices, or if you've been blaming yourself for the guilt you feel of why you just aren't comfortable being intimate with the idea that climate change is affecting you, where do you get a majority of your news from? Are the sources local? Are they reliant on publishing like the AP out of the US primarily? Who owns these media sources? That might influence your answer. So, who does this affect in the Pacific? Obviously, it affects everyone, even settlers, even indigenous people, even people who cannot read the news media. Because how climate change affects us, affects us. How people perceive climate change affects us, affects us. How we perceive climate change 
affects us. So it affects actually everybody. How does it affect the Pacific? Well, we kind of already went into it, but it kind of just emphasizes the importance of framing. And it was necessary. We needed a paper that mentions framing. So many times things come out of the Pacific that is not written by people from the Pacific, nor is it written for us. So that whole concept of framing, who is it written for, who wrote it, why, that all is in the background. And that's all something that general readers of the newspaper don't really think about or see. And that's also just journalism 101. The paper says the importance of framing has motivated research looking at many different types of frames, like climate change broadly, adaptation, carbon emissions, how sea level rise will affect the world. Yet, limited research has explored frames related to Pacific Islands and climate change. Broadly, analysis of newspaper articles about indigenous peoples and climate change found a tendency to portray indigenous peoples as victims. To expand on this, the paper aimed to assess the relative presence of different narratives in reporting on Pacific Islands and climate change. So another thing that the paper did mention is that there is no measurement or indicator of vulnerability that is a single measurement. So different representations of vulnerability become value-laden and used to motivate different actions and responses. So denoting larger regions as vulnerable has also been used as justification for Western intervention, basically white saviorism. Similarly, several scholars have highlighted that constituting certain populations as vulnerable fails to account for community resilience and reifies historical power hierarchies. Le true. My opinion, as a Pacific Islander living in a territory owned by the U.S., I realize that my whole life I've been exposed to American news media mostly. Some of the most toxic news media out there. And my own news media is heavily influenced by American news media as well. Let's go deeper than this. I've been seeing the issue of climate change framed this entire time by primarily U.S. journalists and U.S. sources, which means it is not written by anyone with a concern for the Pacific or even knowledge of the Pacific. So, I've inherited this framing in my attitudes, which has affected the urgency I feel for this issue. This is yet another way that colonizers have effed us up, to put it gently. <sighs> when I found this out, I needed a minute to think. I live in the Pacific, yet because of all of this climate reporting, I haven't cultivated that awareness of other islands in the Pacific, that awareness, that feeling, that responsibility that Hawaiians would describe kuleana or duty to protect my fellow Pacifica. Because of this, I've been out here growing up acting like a fool. And I can't be too hard on myself. I can't put the blame on me entirely. And this is a struggle for me as a Virgo, in case you didn't know. But Things can change now. So what is being done? Let us first call attention to what has been done. There have been many prominent Pacifica politicians, collaborators, and activists in the climate change scene for years now. More so recently because it has been ramping up. 
For example, in August last year, the 50th Pacific Islands Forum was held in Tuvalu, where leaders issued the Kainaki 2 Declaration for Urgent Climate Change Action Now. They chose to use intentional language, climate crisis, rather than climate change, and issued the strongest collective statement to advocate for the Pacific Collective's voice. We thank them. Another example is former president of Kiribati, Anote Tong, who has been advocating for his country and for dignified migration of his people since his presidency, which ended in 2016. Former Prime Minister of Tuvalu, Enele Sapoaga, and many more notable people whose names escape Google right now. We thank them. So, multiple things, multiple ways to answer what is being done. In the world of journalism, I feel like there have been a few incremental changes, especially now that more Pacifica journalists are entering the scene and calling attention to their homes, or now that people like Mia Kami and Kathy Jetnil Kijner have entered the scene. That is the only way we can make meaningful change, by fighting for coverage. In the case of media, Colonized media sources that are owned either by colonizers, non-indigenous settlers who are not allies, or by Pacifica with colonized mindsets, sadly, will not help us until it is too late. Among Pacific Islanders, we are taking control. No, we are seizing control. I just watched a video sent by our very own Carol Ann Carl, the beautiful poet from Pohnpei, on reconnecting with our ocean as Pacifica called Tuna for Our FSM. Check it out on her Instagram. I'll include a link in the show notes. It is videos, poems, and other works of art like this, which I really feel makes us remember that visceral connection we have with our land and ocean, and thus really allows us to remember the threats of climate change, the urgency, the climate crisis. I heard the first line of her poem, Join me on this ocean voyage, navigator and I was ready to grab the tissues. As people who are realizing our place in this world and how we've been put into the positions we are today because of colonization and other factors, this reclamation work of ourselves, by ourselves, is freaking beautiful. And if you can check out that video, I really recommend it. Another important part of this work is the series called Fighting for Our Survival, which just released a few days ago created by three Pacifica poets for 350.org, the org that I usually recommend. It's a grassroots global nonprofit advocating for urgent action for the climate crisis. These three poets, Francis Koya Vakauta, Kathy Jetno Kitchener, of course, and Mia Kami, tell their stories of the Pacific through poems and beautiful footage that forms a story to remind others and ourselves what we are fighting for. And the Pacific will fight. I will say that now. Though, as this article points out, this framing can be harmful in some ways. Sometimes we're tired of fighting, after all. Sometimes we just want to rest or for other people to just, you know, care. If you care, please check out the series, which I've linked in the show notes. I really loved Mia Kami's video because... I fell in love with the song version of it and never thought I would hear the poem version of it. Both were extremely fulfilling to watch. The paper mentions that Australian and American focus groups who are shown videos linking sea level rise in Kiribati and Tuvalu to consumptive practices in the developed world expressed feelings of moral obligation 
because they connected sea level rise to their own position in the industrialized world. The way climate impacts in the Pacific are positioned affects how audiences conceptualize their own roles and obligation and perhaps how they act in response. We should really capitalize on that, to be honest, because we wouldn't have been in this position in the first place without that, without colonizers. Future thoughts? I kind of just mentioned all of them. I think a new generation of Pacifica media people is rising and I cannot wait to see that. We just must fight on and we must because we have no choice. We have inherited this fight. We have inherited this world and this Pacific Ocean. We are the caretakers. This is now the end of the scientific paper. If you've made it this far, thank you, Sainama Asi, for listening all the way through. Whether you've been following our journey from day one with our episode on identity on World Oceans Day 2020, or if you've just recently joined the Deep Pacifica fandom, thank you so much for your support and attention. Thank you for sharing us with your friends and family as well. I know you've been doing it with the number of listeners we have in Hawaii, California, in France, in the UK, in the Marianas, and in Spain. And shout out to all of our listeners in the 52 or so countries we have a significant presence in. I would read you the list, but it'll just bore you. When creating this idea of Deep Pacific subconsciously, all I knew was that I wanted a platform for voices deemed not important enough to go on a platform. The college students, the voices of young people trying to find their way in this world, and the voices of all people who are not experts in the subjects we speak on, young or wise. Lived experiences do count on this platform as well as formal education, and you cannot put a price on that. I wanted to normalize you hearing other Pacific people speaking on these subjects so you know that we are out there having these conversations, and you definitely can do it too. There is room enough for all of us at this table. I also knew that I didn't want this to be some money-making venture or something that I made a profit off of. The last thing I want to do is profit off of our indigenous cultures. F that capitalistic noise. This is why I haven't advertised our tip jar, but I did want to let you know there is one, which you can find on our website, deeppacific.org. No www in front. Any money that we receive in donations will go towards our monthly expenses, paying for the badass podcasting equipment that I just received and will make use of in season two, towards donations to other important Pacifica causes, and towards purchasing and sending out merchandise for you, our awesome listeners, which I am trying in every way possible to make that free for you all. Find these episodes on our website, deeppacific.org, like I mentioned before. No www in front. You can also find us on all the major podcast streaming platforms. We really also super appreciate everyone who rates and reviews us on Apple. I am really happy to say that we have been reviewed on three different Apple country platforms. I guess they're all separate. We will be posting bonus episodes during this break time that we will be announcing on our podcast social media at Deep Pacific Pod on Twitter and Instagram. So please follow us on there for that and join the Deep Pacifica community already. This is now officially the end of season one. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for your patience and attention and time and care and laughs 
and tears. Thank you for opening up your hearts and minds and spirits. Just so you know, season two will resume sometime in February. So be on the lookout for that. I appreciate you so, so much. Sen agradecizu nuhagu. Sainama Asi again for listening. This is now the end of the episode. 